0: welcome to the get real about safety podcast in our podcast we discuss the new view of safety what works and what doesn't work to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization hi i'm mike
1: and i'm pam and we appreciate you listening please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast You can find us on most podcast platforms
0: and also on YouTube. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Get Real About Safety. Today, we have a very special guest. David Lynn is president of Peak Safety Performance based in Greenville, South Carolina. They're a consulting and training firm specializing in safety performance improvement, leadership development, and human performance improvement. David has published numerous articles in some of the top safety magazines and has authored two books on safety leadership and is a frequent speaker at various conferences around the country. I think you will really enjoy our podcast today. Hi, David. Hey, Mike. How are you? I am doing great. How are you doing?
1: Uh, Not too bad. We're uh, trying to just get through the summer.
0: You know, uh, we just had our air conditioning go out in our house, and Uh uh, it went out Sunday, and we had to put a new thermostat in, and then it went out again Monday and another new thermostat, and Tuesday and another new thermostat. Till they finally figured out it's not the thermostat, it's actually a circuit board in the side of the uh, unit outside.
1: (laughs) Well, that makes you realize how much you appreciate AC in the summer in the South. Isn't that the truth?
0: I'm telling you, you know, last night was the first night we've had some cool air, and I slept like a baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know what that's like. It makes you remember back to when you were young. My grandmother didn't have air conditioning. She just had a box fan in the window. And so you had to get beside the window and, and fight for that part, uh, that position on the couch. I'm telling you.
0: Remember. I'm telling you. I don't see how people uh, uh, took it back in the old days. No, that's the truth. Well, uh, we were, let's go ahead and get into our podcast here. And so if you don't mind, uh, you know, I've been knowing you for several years. And I think I actually met you uh, a number of years back when you worked for Fleur. Right. And, uh, and so we've, we've had an affiliation for quite a while. and We've done some stuff together. And uh, so, if you don't mind, uh, just start out talking about your journey from when you got into safety to where you are today. Okay.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be on your podcast. I've been listening to you and Pam recently, and I, I, I really enjoy your, your hands-on side of how you apply human performance. Well, and like you said, I think we got to know each other at floor probably in the, I don't know, 2006, six seven time frame. I always had heard of Mike and Pam and, uh, and so I got to meet you when you came and did some things for us there. But uh, my career in safety started back in 1992 when I worked for OSHA for about three years. And so I cut my teeth on, on safety in, in a regulatory environment. But after a few years, I realized that I, I wanted to expand my experience and got an opportunity to work for Duracell in Lancaster, South Carolina, where we made AA and AAA batteries. It was a seven-day operation 24-7 and it was an extremely fast-paced environment to work and so I my learning curve from the OSHA days in the manufacturing was pretty steep it was very valuable and then after that I got a taste of construction when I got to go work for Owens Corning near Lancaster and build a cultured stone facility and so I got to experience construction from the very beginning And start up a plant and then operate a plant as an EHS manager there for a while. And then, um, you know, around 2004, I got a job working with Fluor in their corporate office in Greenville, South Carolina. So that was a little bit closer to home and a great opportunity to work for a really good company. And so I spent about eight years working for Fluor, supporting projects all over the world from oil and gas to a little bit of Department of Energy to power, just roads and bridges, a little bit of everything. Then uh, got got to, the travel was a little tough. And so after a while, I, had to, uh, I decided to jump into the consulting game where I could control my schedule a little bit better. And so that's, that's when I started doing what we do now. And mm-hmm. so I've been consulting now for about, I don't know, since uh, 2012, really, I believe. No, I'm sorry, probably, right, yeah, around 2012. Like it, I like building the business.
0: That's awesome. Uh, what type of uh, companies do you work with?
1: It's a blend. We, we are about half and half of construction and manufacturing. So we're in and out of some automotive industries, um, but also have, uh, you know, worked with floor again, you know, as a, as a contractor and we, we do a little bit of everything. So a lot in the Greenville area, there is a lot of automotive type uh, companies in this area. So we get involved with that. But uh, we've also, you know, uh, hit the construction jobs from from the big boys like Floor down to people that just need your basic OSHA stuff.
0: So, David, what got you interested in more advanced levels of safety, uh, or should I say high-performance safety culture type work? It's, that's a great
1: question. I think my my overall background was always regulatory. But I, I realized really fast when I got to Duracell, no one's Corning that a regulatory base is valuable, but you can be 100% in compliance and still have injuries. And so I started gravitating towards programs that were a little bit more advanced to help help improve safety. So I've migrated through different phases, you know, real strong on the management system side. Uh, I've been involved with OSHA's VPP through the years. I've, uh, you know, been involved with different management system stuff like that. But I think probably my exposure to high performance cultures really came at floor where the demand was really strong and the performance had to be at a high level or you didn't do work in certain environments. And so I think culture became a big part of my focus at that time and understanding you know, the different frameworks that build those safe cultures. And so I think that was huge. And then I think I, I got exposure to HP, human performance, at Fluor, working on DOE sites, in Washington originally, and then I spent spent six months down at Savannah River, and worked with some of the smartest people I've ever been around. That uh, you know really, really uh, built and 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 lived the HP type environment. And so I think that's that's sort of an elevator speech for my exposure to high performance cultures. But I, I I've just gained more and more interest over the years, in and how to help people not make mistakes.
0: You know, it's interesting that you should mention, uh, Hanford, uh, Pam actually used to work there. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah she's, I thought so. she's from uh, Washington state and, uh, she worked at the Hanford nuclear facility, mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years before going into commercial construction. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny because I was in the nuclear construction site at Vogel right across the river from Savannah right. River plant for, for years. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that uh, you've got that common thread there.
1: Oh, yeah. I, and the beauty about working for floor is I, is I got to work in all types of environments, you know, from the DOE side, the government side, to the power side, to the oil and gas side. And and just to see the different cultures, safety-wise, and all those different environments was huge. And I always felt like, uh, you know, learning in each one of those environments was you know, instrumental in, in how kind of formed my, my thought processes around safety and leadership.
0: Wow. Talk, talk about uh, quick learning, you know, when you're immersed in that level uh, and, and having to learn that quickly, that that's really uh, that's great.
1: Yeah. I've been blessed, no doubt. I've had a lot of great mentors and tried to absorb everywhere I went.
0: You know, that kind of brings up a little question I have uh, just a, of interest uh, working with other cultures around the world, mm-hmm. uh, what what do you find in terms of different uh, views about management, different views about work with different cultures you've worked with, and and I'm talking about social cultures uh, rather than organizational cultures, but how they interact.
1: You know that's that's a great question. I think it's kind of a dangerous question because. <laughs> And what I mean by that is every every country is different, and so I've I've been to projects on the Sakhalin Island in Russia, uh, to the Middle East, to Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, and all over. And and I think what I found is that you you think of countries that would not be as evolved, maturity-wise, would be some of your unsafest environments, and and in some ways they may start out that way, but what I found too is that that a lot of times those environments are willing to, to listen and do the things you ask of them and, and really try to do things right. And you compare that to the United States or and some other countries similar to the U.S. where we're a little more hard-headed. It's yeah. funny how yeah. we may think we're more evolved, and we are in some ways, but the reality is it's hard to tell somebody in the U.S. to do something if they don't want to do it. And so... When you balance those out, you, you may end up in a culture that's that's a less mature safety-wise starting, but yet they're more willing to be coached and do things that you that you're trying to do. So, you got you got to find the right common ground wherever you go, and and lead from that that position of common ground.
0: That is really interesting, and I, and I guess sort of uh, that brings another thing to mind. Uh, do you find that? Uh, different cultures view their people differently in terms of the value of their people?
1: I think so. I, I, I think all, all people, they have a value for life. I think, um, but in different cultures, they, I think they, they circle in their own, own cultures different. Like, you know, for example, project in the Middle East, you may have 10 or 12 different, nationalities on one project, speaking different languages, speaking, eating different foods and just having their own, I guess, um, you know, circle of, of the way they see life and that, and, but you can still get work done even with those different cultures. And I think, I think uh, you learn to navigate how, how to do that.
0: That is really interesting. So, uh, today, what type of services do you offer your clients?
1: Well, we we have three main uh, business uh, focus. One is that we do training, and we do leadership training, and we also have a uh, uh, trainers that do OSHA basic OSHA stuff. I focus most of my attention and my my classes on the leadership side, from root cause analysis to H P to risk assessments, you know, things like that. I enjoy that, and then we've got great instructors that do the typical OSHA tens and fall protection confined space, so that. Training development is one element then we um, we have a, a focus on different performance assessments and performance improvement where we go in and help do different types of leadership skill type assessments and and take some of the things I've written in my books and apply those. And so that has a wide range of requests It's basically what the clients are looking whatever they need we go in and fill the gaps. And then really that third element is we, we provide some site services work and, and put safety people on jobs to help support short-term work or long-term work. And so yeah, the good thing about my background is I've met a lot of people. When a company has a need, I might know somebody. And so I, I love putting that puzzle together and and uh, if sometimes it works and, and helps everybody.
0: You know, it's interesting you do that. We actually dabbled in that when we first started. That uh, we, We've been in business now for 21 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we first started, we kind of threw out a big net trying to capture a lot of stuff in the market, right? And so we got into the staffing thing briefly, but uh, we kind of found out just for us, it just wasn't something we really, you know, I don't. I, Every now and then you get somebody that you would have to replace. I'm just not right. one of these people who likes to get rid of people, <laughs> uh, or, and so right. uh, so it just it just turned out to be something that uh, was not good for us. But uh, but I know other people like yourself that have been pretty doggone successful with that.
1: Well, it, it, the way it's worked for me is that is that I don't promote it, and it's not a part of my business. I really push. But what, what will typically happen is I can get a call on a Friday night and say, hey, David, I, I need somebody on this project. And I'll ask, well, when do you need them? Well, I need them Monday or Tuesday. And then you're like, all of a sudden that becomes a challenge for me. And it's like, I don't know, my, my drilling gets running and I start thinking, well, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And so I start making phone calls and occasionally I can I can make it work. And so when I, when I can fill that gap like that on a dime, it makes – I feel like I'm providing a valuable service. I'll give you a good example is a um, few, few months ago, right in the middle of the COVID stuff, the uh, tornado went through our area, EF3 tornado, and just wiped out houses and businesses. And one of my main clients was, uh, was a company that made an uh, in automotive industry, took out their plant. And so they, uh, you know, the Fords of the world merged onto that company and, and said, we want it back up and running in within a month. And so, uh, you know, I had a lot of contractors that are clients that were helping with that. And so they, you know, a couple of, one of them called and said, hey, you got somebody that can support this safety-wise for us? And so within a, a day, I had somebody there helping them. And so they've been working unbelievable hours over the last few months just to get this plan up and running so that people can work, but also that they can provide their product to to the big companies that, that they deal with. And so being able to help like that is, is really what I enjoy about staffing. It's not really about the money side of that. It's it's really about, I like, I like helping people that need a job, and I like clients that need people to do it. And so that works out great.
0: You know, speaking of COVID, uh, I know we certainly were affected. Uh, we went for a couple of months with almost nothing going until we've converted a lot of things to virtual-type training and consulting and uh, how about you guys? Have you uh, experienced any bumps with this whole COVID thing? A lot of bumps.
1: So March and April, we were similar. We had, uh, you know, our, our schedule was 100% full virtually. And so we had things scheduled in Colorado and Montana and Canada and in the southeast. And then all of a sudden they started dropping one one after the other. And, and so the good thing, of, not good thing, but as things dropped off, the list other things picked up you know like the helping the, the plant get started again and then other clients that have projects going that needed help with the, the pandemic response and so I've been blessed in the sense where things have dropped off other things picked up and we've been able to adjust you know, I teach classes for Greenville Tech in, South, in, the, you know, in our area and so they went to online classes just similar to this and so we were able to do some of those classes online And, you know, I think being mobile, being flexible, and just being able to adapt is is what we've tried
0: to do. That's what you got to do to survive this day and time. Absolutely. So if we get back to the services you provide, leadership, you know, the performance improvement Mm -hmm. stuff, uh, human performance, um, what kind of results do your clients tend to achieve? Well, it
1: depends on how much they jump in. You know, I think, and really, that's the key. What I've learned through the years is it's not always the program you give people; it's the the ownership and enthusiasm they they develop or dedicate to it. And so, I think when uh, the clients I've had that have really embraced the idea that that uh, management engagement is one of the key factors that really make the program work, they've seen you know pretty consistent uh, levels of improvement. And so. I think, I think that's the key. It's the, the, companies that kind of take the information as information and don't really jump both feet in. They, they, uh, they, it's just another part of their library that they they have in their history. But the ones that do the best are the ones that say, Hey, I, I believe in this, uh, this engagement stuff and I get involved. Or for example, I've got some clients that uh, have taken some of my principal to practice classes and, and, have begun to systematically add some of those practices into their framework, and I think they see they see how that that helps their culture build over time. So we we've we've seen a seen a wide range of success, but it all goes back to the idea of what what people are willing to get excited about and behind. And when that happens, you'd be amazed. It just uh, that's where things take off.
0: Man, you hit the nail on the head, and that is really the same experience that we have. Um, regard, you know, we do a lot of culture assessment work and a lot of change management work and of course the human performance stuff. And uh, it, it really is that, it's, it's how much management embraces it. I mean, I mean, for example, we'll do these culture assessments and get a baseline measurement, uh, make some recommendations and help them to strategically plan for improving their culture. But then uh, sometimes management just kind of throws the report in the drawer they don't really act on it, or uh, they kind of partially act on it, and so it, it truly is the level of uh, excitement. I agree. It got you know. I, I
1: listened to one of your podcasts on transformation, safety, trans, and it, it, you were talking about John Cotter and his book and eight steps of uh, leading change. I love that book, and that you see it so often in in business in with safety is that. You, you can't get past those first two or three steps to improve because people don't get the coalition together, the team together. They don't have the right vision and focus and they don't communicate it re- relent- relentlessly. They see the information as good stuff, but they, they, they drop the ball and probably steps three or four of that leading change mindset.
0: And uh, you know, the, the, that really is it. You know, we, we find that a lot of organizations are just not familiar with, Steps that they need to take uh, to manage that change,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: or if they do, sometimes they just avoid doing the hard stuff. Uh, in other right. words, you know, we do these culture reports, and uh, uh, a lot of things come out, a lot of low-hanging fruit. Uh, but it's the major things that change the culture, and right. and they try to, they tend to avoid doing the big stuff that really makes a difference, and just kind of go out fixing little little. Right, low-hanging fruit things. Do you see that?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. People want a checklist that they can go mark off what they did and say it's done. But they don't. They don't always understand the value and what you apply is really in the system that has long-term sustainability. And so I think that's that's the key in in our leadership uh, workshops is I try to impart the idea to people that. You have to have a system to be able to improve things, and you, it's not just about going out and correcting things on a list, so you've got to have a system that pre-plans, a system that identifies, a system that continuously learns, and those, in and of themselves, set the framework and structure that gives you long-term improvement, and I think sometimes that, that's a little bit harder, like you mentioned, takes a little bit more focus, and again, it's not a checklist item you you mark off. But it, it, you've got to look at it as a sustainable way to
0: approach things. You really do. And folks have to be willing to kind of do the hard work. Right. I agree. So, you know, you're highly involved in leadership development. Uh, how important is leadership to developing a culture of safety excellence?
1: That's everything because you can only rise to the level of your leadership. And so people respond to the expectations you have as a leader they respond to the questions you have as a leader. And I kind of look at it like this, on the human performance side is that people people filter their decisions through a handful of things. So if you have an organization with leaders that care and that framework of the organization really expresses that caring nature, people adjust their decisions based on that framework. If you have supervisors, frontline people that engage uh, the workforce, people adjust their decisions based on the way supervisors engage with them. And then I think that, that third level is the employee. So once you have that system that engages and the employees, the supervisors that are interactive, employees are more willing to make good, solid, tactical decisions uh, at the workplace. And so to me, leadership drives all of that, it's the common thread through all of it. And so You've got to have the right vision, you have the expectations and urgency behind all that, but really a mindset too that says we're going to continuously get better. And I think that flows down through an organization.
0: It really does. And, you know, it kind of begs another question. Um, What is your experience? Our experience is that not a lot of companies traditionally have done leadership development. Right. Uh, And, uh, and so it's now starting, you know, here in the recent years, it's, it's getting a little more popular. But what, what's been your experience? Well, you know, I guess kind of like what percentage of companies do you feel like actually do something to develop leadership? I, I would say my
1: experience when I jumped in the consulting world, you know, coming from floor leadership development, you know, you had standard safety supervisor training that everybody had to go through. And so in my mind, it was a staple. And so, but when you get into consulting and and you tell people about these things, they look at you like, what are you talking about? And and when they think of leadership development and safety, the first thing that comes to their mind is OSHA 10, OSHA 30. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's definitely valuable. I come from that regulatory environment. I can't discard that, can't um, deny that. But none of that matters if people don't go lead and act afterwards. And so... My experience has been is that that the bell curve is really around the the top of the bell curve. People exist in that regulatory space, but really that top twenty percent of the ones that focus on leadership. And so um, it's a smaller market base in terms of what what we do. But uh, you know, to me, it's the most valuable part.
0: Do you find that in the training and the development piece of it that once leaders or, or what managers get involved that they uh, pick up interest
1: a little bit yeah I think so especially if you can give them ideas that make them think about how to communicate how to plan out their jobs and help them understand that leadership drives efficiency with safety you know t- safety is not an add-on it's not something you bolt on to the process it is a true measure of efficiency and if you can get that into people's minds, then they understand that if I plan out this job right, then things go better. You know, you're able to manage the job better. You're able to get the things on schedule. But guess what? When you plan it out right, you have things that are safer. So it's, it's, it's a total integration of how people do work. And so sometimes if you can help a manager realize it's not about adding something onto their job, it's about being able to do it more effectively. Because safety... I forget which person I heard say this, but it's so true, is that safety is really, again, not an activity. It's just the way you get from point A to point B without getting hurt. And to me, leadership really is the common thread that makes that happen.
0: And I think that's pretty profound. Uh, You know, oftentimes uh, folks don't see that. They, they, They see that if they're going to have to be a safety leader, you're adding something to them. Uh, right. They've got more forms, more paperwork, more tasks, and and uh, we we got to do more work for less money. And I think what you're saying about showing them uh, uh, that it's about being more efficient is, is is key. It is. It is. It's a. It's a. It's an attention to the details that are hard to
1: describe to people that have not been around it. And 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 so. The beauty of working for floors, I got to go into the good, the bad and ugly. So I saw good clients, great clients and what separated the good and the great. And one of the things that did was their mentality around doing things, you know, the right way, there was a very straight line and very clear delineation between what should be done and not. And, and I think trying to take that average group and, and help them understand that is part of the fun and the challenge, but it's really, it's really the next level. And if you want to get to that level, you've got to understand that it takes leadership to do that.
0: Yeah. And you know, uh, that's another profound thing you just said, you know, when, when there's a way that things are done in an organization, you know, that truly, uh, defines the culture of the organization. Right. No, I agree. What, what's been your experience ain't some of the same uh, almost identical uh, yeah. you know I think it's pretty universal with most companies uh, the other thing is kind of um, funny that we hear from some uh, some of the less sophisticated companies uh, especially some of the supervisor types is I'm already a leader uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a supervisor or I'm a manager and so well, some difference
1: between managing and leading right
0: <laughs> theres a huge difference. <laughs> And, yeah. and the other part of that is that sometimes people see that leadership is a title or a position. Right. I've got sort of an off-the-wall
1: example that um, that always stands out to me. I grew up in a sports environment, played a lot of sports, and my kids did too. And I just remember growing up, the coaches that I liked the best were not just the ones that yelled at me the most. Uh, I had plenty of those, but it was the ones that would yell at me and show me specifically what I was doing wrong and specifically what I needed to do right. Yeah, and they weren't not? just yelling at me for doing wrong. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, a good leader is able to look at their, their workforce and help coach people and not just pitch a fit because things are right or wrong, but to to jump in there and actually help define the tools and techniques to do it right. And so that's the leadership side that I try to add to our classes Is sort of a tactical nature a leader has to have to, to coach on any, on on any
0: level. So, and you know, that is truly a, the, uh, a leader should be a coach. And uh, that, that's the main job of a leader is, is to coach their people. Uh, We've got a client right now that uh, pretty much have converted all of their performance appraisals. They've positioned all of their managers and supervisors as coaches, and then they measure them on coaching effectiveness. And, uh, I mean, it's just demanded in that organization. That sounds like a great thing. Definitely a great thing. Let's talk a little bit about human performance. Uh, You know, that is the next generation in safety and operational excellence. And uh, so what kind of got you interested in that whole arena? You talked about it a little bit while ago, but kind of talk about your evolution into that and kind of what you guys do today. It's, it's been sort of a stop, stop and go kind of evolution of my interest.
1: And so if you go back in time, I think working at some and in interacting with Hanford and, and Savannah River, I always got exposure to human performance in those arenas. And I, I think one of the best classes I had was years ago, I had a Shane Bush class that was, um, I, I can't remember if it was at Savannah River or Hanford, but one of the two. And so I really liked the material but the problem I had at the time was that it felt so academic mm-hmm. and it, it had such a intellectual component that was so academic that sometimes I had a hard time bridging the gap between, you know, hardcore construction and, and, and that academic sort of nature of it. I don't know if that makes sense, but through the years, I've been able to sort of understand that, that the academic side is, is a, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a hands-on side that makes sense that, that, that you can communicate. And so through the years, I've been trying to be able to put it in a language people can understand and, and learn from the academic side, but speak in a way that it applies to, to everyday people. Does that make sense?
0: I'm going to tell you, David, you and I are on the same sheet of music about that. Yeah, um,
1: and that's why well, I like you and Pam. You know, you and Pam have a very hands-on, practical side, that um that that uh, you know i respect
0: you know one of the things that just really bugs me about some of the the human performance books and some of the talks you hear and there's some great people out there and i mean great researchers that are just wonderful but um some of it is so academic it is so difficult for the average person to understand uh that if you don't just put it in plain simple practical language as to what does this look like every day out in the work world you just kind right. of lose people. Uh, you know, for example, I was reading a book recently. Uh, I won't give the name of the author, but, uh, uh, it was one of those books. Uh, it was a really good book, but you read a paragraph mm-hmm. and you got to sit there 20 minutes thinking, <laughs> what did he just say? Right? No, I get it.
1: No. And I learned from those books, but if I take that to my clients, they look at me like, huh, what, what are you talking about? And so, it, that that has always been the biggest barrier for me with hp is it doesn't sound practical until you really understand the the what they're trying to say and so i think that's that's the key and so over the last couple of years i've been trying to uh, my my biggest client base has been more regulatory minded but i'm trying to shift them into a a human performance mind without whole the academic intellectual component well it sounds bad i don't really mean it in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, i don't know i'm just trying to make it's like just talking the same language
0: i mean you really have to and uh the more that you can just make it practical to the work itself and use plain language and you know it takes a lot of work to do that Uh, you have to read it you have to absorb it you have to translate it uh, you know Even even the
1: name human performance improvement or human operational performance it sounds so mechanical and, and unpersonal, but it is just the direct opposite of that. And so I think that's, that's it's a barrier. I'll give you a good example. To me, like if you take skill ba- skill mode, uh, performance mode type mentality, and, and you talk about it like you're reading it out of the book from the studies, people look at you like, what, 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 what are you talking about? But then if you describe it to them in the terms of, you know, like a a new driver getting their license at 15 versus myself at, you know, been driving for 30 years and you explain how both make mistakes, but yet they come from a different angle of mistakes. Then people can make the connection that, you know, you're talking about, oh, my forklift driver that's fresh in the seat behind the wheel, he's going to make different mistakes than my experienced guy that still has that same capacity. And so when we don't throw around those big HP terms as much, but yet we talk about it on a, a real-world sense, it makes a bigger difference to me.
0: I'll tell you kind of a funny thing. We had a client a while back who um, uh, went to – he was a corporate safety director went to his CEO and gave him some articles on human performance, and they were pretty academic. Mm-hmm. He read about three paragraphs and threw it in a garbage can. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. And so he finally asked me to come up and talk to the CEO. And the first question I asked was, uh, how much do you think human error cost you? Uh, and take safety completely out of the picture in, in other areas like quality, production, uh, customer service, accounting, those areas. And and his response at that point was millions. And so then we started talking practically about error. We got his attention. But uh, right. that academic stuff just uh, doesn't get it.
1: Right. But you know what is the simplest part of that academic stuff that just, it's like a light bulb going off in my head. sounds silly, but the idea that people make mistakes. When you just say that and you you sit there and think, well, of course they make mistakes. But then you sit back and think, how do we respond to those mistakes? Managers, myself included, over my whole career, when you hear about those mistakes people made, you sit back and think, what the heck were they thinking? Or why did you do that? And you know better. But yet, we act like nobody ever makes a mistake. And so, to me, the most simple, fundamental part of HP is not academic. It's the reality that we're all fallible and that we're we are going to make mistakes. We need to minimize that, but we also need to insulate ourselves from it. And we do that with good decisions filtered to through the right things. And that represents the layers that um, of the anatomy and event. You know, so. You don't have to talk in engineering, scientific, academic terms to understand that, hey, we screw up, and we got to figure out how to help ourselves.
0: You know, it reminds me of something that Todd Conklin talked about a while back, that we, we tend to want people to be more like machines, and we exactly. want machines to be more like people. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you see that a lot. I don't know why that is in the workplace. We tend to just discount the fact that human beings are human beings, and they make right. errors. Absolutely. I agree. We're on the same
1: page with that.
0: Yeah. So what are you seeing in terms of clients? How are they taking to this whole HP thing?
1: I, well, I think they like it when that, especially if I, uh, you know, I've just finished up a series with a client, a regional client uh, that we, we, I didn't call it HP. I called it safety leadership training. Mm-hmm. Everything about the class was a human performance exercise. And so I think when I call it something different, People warm up to it. Honestly, I don't know why that is, but if I if I talk about how to help your supervisors manage their work better, uh, people will love it. But uh, I think that. I, but if I say, "Hey, I'm going to do a human performance class," they they don't connect with what I'm providing. So I think we're beginning to be able to to use use uh, you know our approach a little bit different, and and they they like the material. They like sort of the hands-on side that we put to it, and. And the reality of it is, is that it's all about engagement and being able to help people see the work being done by the people that do the work. And I think, I think it makes sense to them. And so we're having, we're having success.
0: And, and I think that's a good approach, David. You know, we, we've done some of that as well as just roll human performance into safety leadership training and just right. don't even use the term. Right. Uh, you know, your more sophisticated clients though, or people that uh, have, uh, maybe an owner demanding that they implement uh, the principles. Uh, certainly it's okay, but uh, your your uh, clients that uh, are not familiar, it's it's, uh, it's it's a good approach.
1: Well, that's, I found the same thing. And I am curious, I know you, got, you and Pam kind of started on the Georgia Tech regulatory side through the years, and that's kind of how we got to know you. How, how did you transition over into HP? And I'm not trying to switch the interview on you but I'm, I'm curious how that worked
0: yeah so you know we spent a number of years and we actually still Pam and Phillip are still very involved in that regulatory side over there um, so we we were involved for a long time on that and uh, we started doing a course called years ago we started doing a course called construction safety management and it became very popular and you know, it was really based around culture change and leadership more than anything mm-hmm. else, and uh, how to shape behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, that got so popular, we got so much request to expand that to other industries. So, we changed the name to Advanced Safety Management. And, and that's of course, what so, you do at Georgia Tech now, isn't it? We do that course at Georgia Tech, and of course, it's changed a lot over the years. You know, we're you know, right. continuous improvement, right? We're constantly improving that course. And uh, so, so as we moved along and, and I started reading more about human performance, and I'll tell you probably the biggest spark uh, was I actually heard Dr. Todd Conklin speak at a Southern Company conference. Uh, I was actually speaking there uh, myself and I heard Todd speak and it's when he first came out with his book Pre-Accident Investigations mm-hmm. and it set me on fire. And <laughs> I'm thinking this is the best thing I have ever heard in my entire career. Oh, because, man, that's awesome. Be, that's because, great. Because, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that in the back of your head, you always kind of knew that this is yep. the way things really should be. I totally agree. But but to hear Todd talk about it and, and then to read his book, it just set me off on the path to this is the direction we're going. And right. so we've tried to refine that over the years. And I, I can't really even express how grateful I am for the opportunity just to hear him speak that time.
1: Oh, yeah. He's one of my – I like listening and
0: reading his stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a good podcast too. Uh, he does. He really does. Uh, so what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give to companies that want to improve safety performance? If you, if you were to give one or two pieces of advice, what would they be? I think
1: I would start with the idea that, that people – the decisions they make to do work every day is not linear. It's sort of an up and down process throughout the course of the day. And and they they have to adjust and make decisions. And so if if we're gonna adjust to help them, we have to understand our safety framework has to be in place. And so that's one of my books that I wrote, Principle to Practice, that uh, we talk about following the blue line, which means that kind of like a GPS, you have a starting point and a destination There's different routes to get there. But in safety, we have to have the right milestones to get there. And that framework that we develop through principle of practice represents a a higher level of, of influence on decisions. But I think the biggest tactical thing I would say to people is that you really can't get better unless your frontline leaders and managers are highly visible on a consistent basis and they actually talk to employees to learn talk to them to understand and not to dictate and order them around. I think if they can understand that, that is a catalyst to get better.
0: You know, that is huge. And and that's one of the things that we recommend a lot in our culture assessment work is field presence, having managers sure. and supervisors out there, interacting with people, uh, uh, finding out where their difficulties are asking what they need, uh, right. not just telling them what to do. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it, it's amazing when they do get out there and they make that interaction. I, I had a guy one time, uh, I think it was in uh, Washington State, who uh, made the statement. He said, you know, I have noticed that the more engaged that I am, the more engaged my employees are. He Isn't said, that if, funny? <laughs> he said, but if I back off, they back
1: off. Right. <laughs> Lesson learned right there. I think that's a good way to look at it. I think I think managers look, look at employees as the problem a lot of times, and it's really the reverse. And, I mean, is that em- employees solve problems all day, every day. And so part of our goal was to be able to see how they're solving them and how to help them, how to break down obstacles, give them decision-making thought processes that help, and support it. And I think because uh, nobody wants to get hurt, And so I think if we establish the structure and the expectation and the support, it's amazing how the program will get better. You don't need 2,000 pages of a safety manual to help you. What you need is active engagement, one-on-one with people to to see where the problems are.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Talk about your books a little bit. I know you wrote a book called uh, Principles to Practice. Right, And uh, I think you co-authored a book as well. So talk a little bit about uh, your books and uh, where people can get those. Yeah, I, um, I, I
1: about 2006 or seven, I I uh, co-authored a book with David Sarkis, 22 uh, Ways to Make You a Champion for Safety. And then that was sort of my learning, learning tool to, to the book writing stuff. And then a few years later, I, I authored my first principle to practice book that was based on – the idea that there are certain principles that we all believe and feel strongly about, but if we don't have certain tools and techniques and practices to put them in place, they don't mean much. And so I sort of built built a book around that. And then recently in the last year, I, I did a volume two of that and called that Principle of Practice, Follow the Blue Line, which is really my favorite book that I've written so far. And they're available on Amazon um, you know, at uh, amazon.com or you can go to our website, my website, www.peaksafetyperformance.com. And so they're, they're available there.
0: Is that how people can get in touch with you as well? Or, or is
1: there yeah. other contact information? Yep. They can get in touch with me at david.lynn at peaksafetyperformance.com or they can go to my website and, and they can find me there.
0: That's Excellent. Well, we're about up on time. Is there anything else that you uh, are, you, you feel like adding or, or anything that you're just uh, burning up to say? No, I
1: think we covered a lot of bases. I, I've definitely enjoyed and appreciated the opportunity to talk with you, Mike. I've always thought a lot of you and Pam and uh, have enjoyed working with you in the past. So uh, thank you for letting me be a part of your podcast.
0: Well, thank you, David. I think you bring a lot of value, and I've always appreciated our professional affiliation over the years. So uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. Okay. Thank you, Mike. We'll talk later. All right.